before I jump into my sermon, I just have to say again, uh, it has been a tremendous week around here preparing for Vacation Bible School. Now, I don't know if you know this, but we're one of the rare churches that's still doing a daytime VBS. Uh, It is difficult for most churches to figure out how to mobilize the volunteers to pull off a daytime VBS. And so I just want to thank so many of you who have uh, volunteered to come uh, tomorrow through Friday and pour into kids. Because we know spiritually this can be an incredibly pivotal week for children. And if you, uh, if this whole atmosphere inspires you and you've got a day or two next week that you could spare, you maybe can't spare the whole week, but come on in. We'd love to have extra hands even uh, on late notice. We could use all the help we could get. Um, but I want to specifically say thank you to our decorating team. If you have not walked down that hallway and back, you need to do that before you leave church. Um, They have done a marvelous job transporting, and I don't know if you've had the opportunity, if you got to see kids come into this space for the first time this morning, but it is amazing watching their eyes light up. Just this week, uh, I came in, I've had the privilege of watching all of this keep happening. It's like Monday morning I came in and thought, they're done. And then every day, other things kept adding in little details, right? Like monkeys hanging from vines and octopus in the hallway. And um, I was thinking about the story of, uh, how many of you remember the story where Mary Magdalene breaks her jar of perfume over the feet of Jesus? And, uh, And the other disciples are sort of shocked, like, that's too extravagant, right? They say, and Jesus is like, no. That's worship, and it changed the atmosphere. And I think uh, I'm stunned by the ways the atmosphere of this church has been changed because there have been people who've poured out their gifts, folks like Larry Majol and Kristen Boyles and Heidi's Lab and Lindsay Bohm and lots and lots of others. And so anyway, I just want you to know this is generosity, and uh, I can't imagine that kids won't be impacted by that. So thank you so much, all of you who are, who've had a hand in all this and will have a hand in all of this. So I don't know how to compete with the decor, honestly, but it's okay. We're going to jump into the Word of God because the Word of God is good. And for those of you who may be joining us for the first time this morning or maybe haven't been with us for a couple of weeks, we're doing this series called Living on God's Time, where we're looking at the story of God's faithfulness to his people over thousands of years. And Pastor Gary grounded us when we first started this series by inviting us every week to look for the ways that God is patient, the ways that God is persistent, and the ways that God is present with his people. And He invited us to think about the ways that all of those things give us perspective today, here and now. Because it's easy to think that these stories are old stories and they happened to people long ago in a land far away and how do they affect me today. But I hope you've discovered, as I've had the richness of discovering, that God is present through these stories because they speak to our stories. And so... As is true on good series televisions, I want to back you up 
to bring you into where we're going to start today. Now, you'll recall that the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for uh, several hundred years, and the people of God were rescued by God through a man named Moses. And he brought them into the wilderness. And at Mount Sinai, God made another agreement, a covenant with his people. And he said, here's the deal. I am committed to you, and I'm going to show you my ways. I'm going to give you instructions about how to live, not because I'm a taskmaster, but because I want you to show the rest of the world what, I'm look li- what I look like, what justice and generosity and peace look like. And so you, my people, if you will follow my ways, the natural result will be blessing and life. And the Israelites promptly disobeyed. They actually spent lots of time wandering around the wilderness as God continued to shape them and teach them that he was trustworthy and he was good and he could be followed. So after that, Joshua took them out of the wilderness and into the promised land where they again attempted to follow God's ways and to show the nations what God was like, and again, they failed. And over and over again, uh, the spiral goes downhill. They fail miserably. There's chaos and corruption. Pastor Josh did a beautiful job of talking about how everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so the people, uh, the, the original plan of God's was that he would be Israel's king. And then Pastor Johnny last week talked about how, in fact, the people looked around them and said, you know, we have a better idea. We want what they have. We want what all the other nations have. We want a king just like they have. And God warned them, said, no, 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 no. You understand that's a rejection of me. But if you want a king, I'll give you a king. And sure enough, God gives them a king. Now, a man named Samuel is the one who anoints the first king. His name is Saul. And Samuel warns Saul and the nation. He says, here's what God's looking for. God is looking for obedience and humility in a king. God does not want you to be a king like the other nations. He doesn't want you to use your power to uh, bring violence or to try and tell God what to do. And Saul started okay, but very quickly, his character flaws came through. He was dishonest, he lacked integrity, he was insecure, and those things become his downfall eventually. He disqualifies himself by blatantly disobeying God's commands. Okay, so Saul's trajectory begins to do this. But at the same time, God is raising up another king a young boy who is the least likely of all candidates, a boy named David. In fact, he wasn't even invited to the king anointing party. He was out working in the fields, which means his dad didn't even think he could be the king. You want to talk about messed up Father's Day celebrations at that house, right? And so David is anointed king, and God begins to prepare him And there's a season where Saul is still the king, and David has been told he's going to be the king. 
And that's a crazy season. If you have time, read 1 Samuel because it's full of drama and all kinds of craziness. Saul's chasing David through the wilderness, trying to kill him because he's so jealous. David's character shows again. He says over and over again, I won't kill you. I will not take your life, Saul. I will wait and let God do what God is going to do. It's amazing. You know, one of the troubles with this series is there's like 17 sermons you could preach every single week. But uh, the good news is that finally Saul dies in battle, and the 12 tribes come to David, and they say, please be our king. Unite us. Make us a whole nation without conflict. And David prays about it, and he does. And the first order of business is he makes Jerusalem the capital of Israel. And he actually puts his home in Jerusalem. He makes that the political capital. He uh, takes care of some skirmishes around the edges. And there is now, finally, a season of peace. And that's where we pick up today's story. That is a long way to get you to this story. But hopefully it will help make sense. So we find David... In 2 Samuel 7, we're going to begin in chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, feel free to open it, or you can just follow along. David begins, After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. And Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Now, hang on one second. We find David sitting on maybe his deck, right? You can imagine him. And he starts talking about an ark and a tent. Now, Some of you probably maybe know what that means, but others of you might not know what that is. And so I want to give you a quick lesson, because in the wilderness, remember I talked about when the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness, God knew that the people were going to need physical reassurance of his presence. And so he instructed them to build a tent. It's called technically a tabernacle. And That was supposed to be portable so that God's presence would go with them wherever they went. Not just with them. Actually, the plan always was that God's presence would lead them. The tent would always go before, which was kind of, you know, an act of faith if you're being charged by an army, right? Oops, the tent is in front of us. But God says, that's how much you're going to have to trust me. You put me in front of everything else. Can you advance one slide for me? That'd be great. For some reason, this isn't working. This is a rendering of what that tent looked like. And so the priests would put it up and tear it down, and it was a whole thing. And then at the center of this was something called the Ark of the Covenant, which as much as you would like, um, the, it doesn't exactly look like the Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> it looks like this is a closer representation of what it looked like. And this was intended to be the throne of God, all right? 
the place where God himself dwelled. And it was carried by the priests on those poles. There were very clear ways to do it. And all of this is wrapped in symbolism. It all points back actually to the Garden of Eden. Right? And so the Israelites have a portable Eden, a place where they meet and dwell with God that has been moving with them all along the way so that God could show them, I am with you and I go everywhere you go. All right? So David, at this point, says, well, Jerusalem is it. We've arrived. We're here. And I'm sure he's feeling grateful and maybe a little guilty, who knows, because he's now arrived, right? He's in a palace. There's rest. People trust him. He is the king. And so he decides, I want to build a house for God, one that's at least as grand as my cedar lion palace where David currently lives. You know, I think his intentions are mostly good. His impulse is to bless the God who has blessed him. Um, although, let's just acknowledge that this doesn't hurt David either, right? Who doesn't want to be able to say, you know, my next-door neighbor, yeah, that's God, right? I mean, let's be honest, this helps David too. And uh, uh, Walter Brueggemann makes the comment, this is a, a mixed act of genuine piety and self-serving legitimization, right? David being able to find a permanent home for God is a good thing. And so I point that out because I think it points to the reality of most of our service. It's never pure. We always have some mixed motives as part of it, and that's just what is. And it's true for all of us. Now, you notice he runs it by the prophet Nathan. And Nathan doesn't hesitate a bit. Right? He's like, yeah, that sounds like something God would like. You know what? I bet if you do it, God will like it. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? I don't know. Probably this is not true of you, but there are lots of times when I have great ideas of things I'm going to do for God. And here, Nathan and David decide this is a great thing. What could be wrong? Yeah, we'll follow that thought just a minute, all right? There's several things that are possibly wrong with that. Let me read the next couple slides to you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever have I moved with all the Israelites? Did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, I have to tell you, I have a lot of sympathy for David at this moment. Hang on one second. The act of giving gifts has created a lot of pain in my marriage. Can I get an amen from anybody else in the house? Oh, yeah. The first Christmas we were dating, I bought Dennis 
what I would now describe as the ugliest wool sweater you have ever seen. Now, of course, mind you, I did not think at the time it was the ugliest wool sweater I had ever seen, right? I thought it was sophisticated and subtle and sturdy like he was. Um, I bought it. It cost me way more than I should have paid because I was smitten, right? And I'll never forget, I gave it to him. And um, I was so excited, right? And he opened it. And he's not a good actor. If you've ever met my husband, he's not. He's not. Bless his heart. He tried so hard. He was like, oh. Oh. <laughs> Turns out he's allergic to wool. Whoops. The color, which I thought, again, was sort of this nice sand color, when he actually put it on, which I, I yeah, he, he was trying. He was trying so hard, so he put it on. It washed him out. It made him look even paler than he, I mean, he's a, he's a Dutch, you know, he's a pale guy. Washed him out horribly. And I remember thinking, this is awful. You'd think that would have taught me a few things, right? You'd think that, first of all, we are very different people, my husband and I. Um, Again, if you ever meet us on a personality thing, we are exact opposite. So my instincts about giving gifts, super bad. Super bad. Because I, we tend to, you know this, right? We tend to give people what we want to get. Right? So that's not good. We spent seven years of me giving him really what I thought were fabulous gifts. <laughs> but we're not what he actually wanted which was painful for both of us, right? Because he has to sort of either pretend to like it or by year six, he's not even pretending anymore. He's like, why don't you just ask me? Do you hear God? Why don't you just ask me? Talk to me. Ask me. Because you don't know me well enough to know what I want. Not to mention, and here's the sort of tricky little secret, uh, if I'm really, really honest, there's some well-meaning arrogance that I know what's better for my husband than he does, right? See, there's a, there's a little bit of like, I know what you should want. And I understand this dynamic goes both ways in gender. I'm just owning my half of the equation. And so oftentimes, I think this is what we have a tendency to do with God. If we're not careful, we can tell God what we're going to do for him. And I, I, I love that God's a little snarky here, right? Not mean, but he acknowledged, like, hey, did, did I ever mention wanting a house? Did, did I ever rebuke anybody for not getting me something? No. God says, hey, uh, pay attention. Ask me. Ask me me. Because what you want, what you think I want, well, it looks good and it's well-intentioned, but it's not what God wanted. And so, if we go on to the next couple slides, let me read you what happens next. God says, now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, 
from tending the flock and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I cut off all your enemies before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not possess, oppress them anymore as they did from the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Did you hear the eyes? Did you hear God? God's like, okay, I understand you want to do for me, but guess what? This is about what I do for you. I rescued you, little boy. I saw you in the wilderness and pulled you out. I am the one who made you king. You didn't do that. I did it. I, God, 23 times God is the subject of a verb, an active verb in this section. That's a lot of God, and it's a lot of God doing stuff, right? And this is what God is doing, and he's pointing it to himself, and he's pointing it to his people. See, let's be clear. Yes, God is making some promises to David, but if you'll notice, it's at the end, it's about his people. David, God isn't trying to bless David for David's sake. God has a bigger plan to bless the nations at this point. You know, and I think this gets at the heart of one of the dynamics we have with God, which is that we have a tendency to want to get to a point where we've been blessed and then we want to run on our own. And God says, no, 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 no. You always follow me, even in your service. I'm always the king, and I always want to lead you, and my plans will always be bigger than your plans. So don't settle for your little plans. Don't settle for your little things that you think you want to do for me. Keep in relationship with me. Keep in community. Keep listening and following. Because if you will do that, you have no idea what will come. Eugene Peterson says it this way. I love this. God's word to David through Nathan was essentially this. You want to build me a house? Forget it. I'm going to build you a house. The kingdom that I'm shaping here isn't what you do for me, but what I do through you. I'm doing the building here, not you. I'm not going to let you confuse things by launching a building operation of your own. If I let you fill Jerusalem with sights and sounds of your building program, carpenters, hammers, masons, chisels, before long, everyone will be caught up in what you are doing, David. This is a kingdom we're talking about, and I am the king. And I've gotten along without a so-called house for quite a while now. If there's building to be done, And I love and resent that reality, if I'm honest. Because there's a way I don't want to always have to follow. It's hard work. We went to Madison last weekend to visit our son. And he's uh, used to, starting to get used to driving in Madison. We are not. And uh, 
he was so excited, he wanted to, we had to take his car in, so he led the way. And I realized it is a very uncomfortable thing to follow your son who drives way faster than you do. <laughs> and I, multiple times I had to make the decision, do I keep up with him, do I not, do I? And fundamentally, I just don't like following all the time. And yet God invites us. He says, come, because my plans are bigger than you could imagine. Listen to the plans God has for Israel. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you and your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Time out. This is one of those places where it gets a little confusing because God's sort of talking big picture and next generation. The son he's talking about right here is actually Solomon, who will in fact build the temple, who will build the house, because that's who God picked. But God's also beginning to talk about the kings after David that are coming. And he says, I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by humans' hands. But my love will never be taken away from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I removed before you, your house and your line will endure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. See, God's vision was forever, and David's vision was tomorrow. And the beauty of the forever vision of God is that it fundamentally changed God's relationship with us. See, in the Mount Sinai covenant, it was all if. If you do these things, I will bless. But here's the truth, that God's commitment with David, if disappears and is replaced by nevertheless. Ne it's replaced. God says, there is nothing, David, you can do that will stop my king from coming to power. And my kingdom and your kingdom will reign forever. Yes, you will screw up. In fact, it'll only be a chapter more and David will screw up badly. Right? Yes, I will discipline you. Yes, you will experience trial. But nevertheless, I will never abandon my people. And my kingdom will be forever. Forever. There are no acts of disobedience which can make God step away anymore. He promises. It sounds a lot like Romans 8, doesn't it? Where Paul says, a thousand plus years later. For I am convinced that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no if now. There is only, 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 Nevertheless, 
nevertheless, God. And that's significant because the story is going to get ugly for a while now. It's going to get ugly. There are centuries ahead, and God is saying to David, and God is saying to us, keep your eyes on David's line because there are going to be kings that are going to be horrible, and there are going to be people who are horrible, and the nation and all of it is going to look like God forgot or changed his mind or fell asleep. But in only a thousand years, you heard that, right? In only a thousand years, we're going to get to Matthew 1, which begins and opens by saying, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, or also called the King, the son of who? The son of Abraham. You want to talk about perspective? You want to talk about a God playing the long game? And you wonder, and I wonder, if God can handle tomorrow? God says, thanks, I got it. His grace has it. Let's pray. Gracious and almighty God, your love overwhelms us. And God, I thank you for the promise again today that we can stumble and we can fall and we will and you never leave. That your affection and your purposes don't hinge on our good intentions, our perfect behavior, our perfect lineage. You, God, have been at work for years and years and decades and centuries, and you are the same today that you were yesterday. And in that grace, we can put our hope, we can ground our lives, we can move because of you and your commitment, that is our hope. We are so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.